pages of ink and hours of seminars have been spent trying to answer the question, how can we grow our church both, both deep and, and wide? And the answers are come in all kinds of varieties, a quality children's program, a thriving youth group, a bus ministry, a Thursday night visitation, big events with a well-known speaker or a celebrity, a small groups, serving ministries in the community, Bible institutes, a solid deacons. And in Titus, Paul tells Titus to put in order the things that were lacking in the churches. And we might be waiting on the edge of our seat to hear the answer the church growth gurus have been trying to answer. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, knowing the most necessary, essential, vital structure to have in place, as was his pattern, the tip of the spear that everything else will follow, answers with a team of pastors in each church who are qualified in their blameless home life, qualified in their blameless character, and in their blameless use of the Word of God. In other words, in order for a church to be a mature machine for disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples of all nations, by loving their neighbors in word and deed, it needs a qualified team of pastors. So the immediate thing that Paul follows his command that Don just read in verse 5, and to set in order the things that are lacking, is that Titus is to appoint elders in every city. Now just by way of review, we began this book, it looked in verses 1 through 4, uh, last week here, we saw this is toward the end of Paul's life. He has just a few years left remaining. He's, he is not in prison right now. He apparently had been put in prison. That's where he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon there in Rome. Apparently he seems to be let out of prison because in 2 Timothy, the last book he writes, he is on death row and in prison again. There in the other uh, house arrest in Rome, he was able to move about. Uh, he was under guard, uh, but he was not in a dungeon. And here, in the second, and, and later on in Second Timothy, he's at the end of his life, waiting for his life to end by execution. And Roman prisons were not a place uh, of punishment; they were a place simply to hold you until the judgment could be rendered. And somewhere in between there, the span of three years, he writes this book of Titus, and apparently he had gone and made a, a trip to Titus, uh, a trip with Titus to the island of Crete, which is an island off the, uh, off the coast of, uh, of Greece here. <clears throat> and he had uh, uh, gone through his strategy and his pattern. And we saw his strategy uh, last time as really being uh, broken down into three things. He would evangelize strategic cities, he would establish local churches, bring those new believers, new converts into congregations, disciple them. And then his third stage was to entrust the faithful men to oversee those new churches. And apparently stage uh, uh, one, evangelizing strategic cities, had been accomplished there in Crete sometime, we don't know when. Uh, he had uh, uh, given them some instruction. But now he was ready for Titus to do phase three, to entrust the faithful men and oversee uh, these, these churches on Crete. And so in verse five, he says, For this cause, I left you in Crete. 
So Paul went on, and he left Titus to do this task, and he writes this letter to give instructions to Titus as to what to do. He says that you should set in order the things that are wanting or lacking, and ordain or appoint elders in every city as I had appointed you. So he turns his attention here to Titus' immediate task within these churches on Crete. Crete is relatively small, but it's one of the larger islands in the Mediterranean Sea. By the 2nd century uh, BC, Crete had a substantial Jewish population. Uh, powerful enough, uh, even at that time, to get the protection of Rome. That's how uh, uh, Crete had grown. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Luke reports that Cretan Jews were among those who were visiting Jerusalem, who witnessed the unique moving of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost, when God birthed the New Testament, the New Covenant Church. And so, perhaps they went back to Crete, and, uh, and then when Paul went to Crete, he used them to network in evangelistic relationships and, and partnered with them uh, there, and, uh, and, and, and a church was birthed out of that. Crete seemed to be a fertile location for missionary work because it was a very dark place. And the light could shine very brightly. And so when Paul says in the theme verse of Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 that the reason I left you in Crete meant that Paul and Titus probably had a joint missionary effort on that island. And for some unknown reasons, Paul left Crete before these churches were, 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 were uh, in, a, in a fuller state of maturity. But he left Titus behind. In chapter 3 and verse 12, you can see that uh, alluded to as well. In order to complete the organization. And now, and now he writes this letter to Titus to tell him how to do it. And what are the things he needs to focus on. <clears throat> and um, that's what we want to look at this morning. Titus 1 and verse 5. And I want you to see this morning, uh, uh, first of all, I'll skip some of the review here that we had last time. I want you to see here um, the mandate, the mandate in verse 5. He says, for this purpose, for this cause, left I you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting. That word set in order is a word that's used to set a broken bone. And it has the idea of fill what's missing. Or things that are broken, uh, uh, adjust so they're not broken anymore. Bind them up. Uh, there were some weak things that were in the churches in Crete. And Paul uh, lists them in Titus chapter 2. The older women were not discipling the younger women. The older men, uh, the younger women, some of the younger women were, were, were going astray in various different ways. The older men uh, had a role with the younger men. Slaves in the relationship to their masters. Um, uh, the, the, they, had, they had kind of, uh, the church had also kind of um, began a, a holy huddle and had not, not looked to serve their communities with good works in chapter 3. And over and over you'll see a church that needed to be uh, 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 infused with sound doctrine and then in behavior that was in accord or lined up with sound doctrine to show the glory of God and adorn the gospel, to show that the gospel of God is beautiful and it changes hearts, it changes lives, to give an attractiveness uh, that, that uh, um, uh, shows the beauty of Christ in them, the hope of glory. And so he gives this mandate, set these things in order. And the very first thing he says in order to set these things in order is, I want you to appoint elders. To appoint elders. Set in order the things that are wanting and ordain or appoint elders in every city as I have appointed you. This is the mandate. 
What he means by this, and I want you to understand when you hear that word elders, he means pastors. Pastors. That word elder is used, and then later in verse 7, he, he, he describes these people as being bishops or overseers. Uh, they're the same people. They're not distinct church officers, but they're, they're the same people with distinct titles. Then later on, when you look down in verse 7, he calls them uh, stewards of God. And then in verse 9, he told, tells them uh, they are to hold fast the faithful word he's been taught. They're to feed, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the opposition. So, this is, this, is, this is a particular office here. You can call it elders, as he's called it, overseers or bishops, or as we in our common terminology call them, pastors. So, elders are pastors. You can see this also in Acts chapter 20, frequently, where the, the words are, 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 are used interchangeably. And then in 1 Peter 5, if you want to check the scriptures here. So this isn't not this isn't a, you don't have pastors and they don't have this and, and then another sub layer here of elders. Elders are pastors, bishops are pastors, overseers are pastors uh, here. Shepherds is the idea here, and and so they're the same person and they're the care for God's people by teaching them. Verse nine, uh, they're called God's steward. They're they're to dispense food to the household of God. They're they're shepherds here. Uh, they lead the flock in the good pasture. They protect from the wolves. And these are, these are pictures of the ministry of the Word of God. And so the very first thing he says, the second order here, is to install pastors. Install pastors in every city. So those are the people who he's asked to install. The second thing I'd like you to notice here is that the idea here is that they are teams of pastors. Teams of pastors. He says, ordain elders in every city as I appointed you. He didn't say ordain a pastor. He says ordain elders in every city. <clears throat> God intended each church to have a team of pastors. I believe this with all my heart as I look at the New Testament pattern. Titus was told to appoint elders in every town. Um, you can see this carried out through the New Testament. In James 5, the church people are to call for the elders of the church to come and minister to them in prayer. In Acts 14 and verse 23, that verse that was up on the screen, Paul's pattern here, he evangelizes, he establishes the disciples, and then he appoints elders in every church. So it's a team. In Acts chapter 20, he calls the, the elders in Ephesus together, so a team, and he entrusts them now and says, okay, he passes the baton to them and says, okay, this is your work now. Take heed that you do it. Take heed that you oversee the church. It's the same word used for bishop. Overseer. When he writes to Philippi in Philippians 1 1, he writes to the elders and the deacons in the church. And so there is a difference between elders and deacons. Uh, if we wanted to summarize this pretty quick, pretty, pretty simply, maybe oversimply, we could say the, 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 the elders oversee the spiritual nature of the work and the deacons oversee many of the, of the, of the physical uh, 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 needs of the, of the work in many, um, many places. You can kind of say that if you're wondering what the difference between deacons and elders is, the word deacons is not a, not a special title. It just means servant. The word elders is not a special title. It refers to the dignity. The word overseer, bishop, just refers to the, the management of the church of God. The word pastor is actually a verb, but it means to, over, to, 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 uh, to feed, to shepherd. Here, uh, Deacons uh, will, will, will focus on being like the shock absorbers of the church. They help run, make things run smoothly here. 
But the spiritual leadership, the oversight is entrusted to pastors here, as he's referring to here in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. These elders, these overseers, these pastors. So it is a team ministry because team ministry helps for different people with different gifts and different specialties here to oversee the church of God. Now, look what he look how he describes these men in verse 6. Ordained elders is the mandate. Now here's the men. Here's the men in verses 6 through 9. If any be blameless, means above reproach. In other words, mud that might be thrown at them can't stick. They have a reputation, a good reputation. The husband of one wife, literally in the Greek it means a one-woman man, a man who is faithful in his marriage. If he's not married, he is obviously uh, faithful uh, in his purity. Having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, that word can be translated faithful or it can be translated believing children. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. For a bishop must be blameless. Again, he repeats this, and this is, the, this is the thing that comes up over and over. Blameless. Blameless in his home. Blameless in his character. Blameless in how he handles the word. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. The, the, the one who is entrusted to represent God. Not self-willed. Not angry quickly. Doesn't have a quick temper. Not given to wine controlled by substances. Not a striker, not a violent person. Not someone who's quick to, to, to bring the fist out. Not given the filthy look or looking for ways to, to pilfer or dishonest gain. But, those are the negative things, not these things, but a lover of hospitality, literally that means a lover of strangers. And, uh, we were looking in Sunday nights at this topic of hospitality and what that means and how important it is in the New Testament. So important that one of the qualities of being a shepherd here is that they need to have a heart for this. A lover of good men. Literally in the Greek it says a lover of good. Translators have the word men. So it means a lover of good things, which obviously can include um, uh, God's good men. Uh, sober. A seriousness, a seriousness about eternal things. Just, the word there, just, has to do with it. A, 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 a righteousness and integrity. Holy. Set apart from the world. Set apart to God. Temperate or disciplined. Self-controlled. Holding fast. Clinging to the faithful word as he has been taught. So they've had things passed to them that now they are clinging to and it becomes the tuning fork for everything they do because verse 9 says that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and encourage and to convince the gainsayers, the opposition. So what kind of men are these? These are real men. By the way, they are men. Something we should not just, not just pass over in our society. The leaders of the church are to be, the pastors of the church are to be men interested in authority of the church. Real men. Biblical manhood is the description right here. When you read these words and you hear the word blameless, some of you might be thinking in your words, wow, that sounds like someone who's perfect. That's not the point here. This doesn't mean that he's perfect because that standard is impossible except by one man, mediator, between us and Christ Jesus. But it does mean because there is increased visibility of the church leader, both by the church and the unbelieving community outside of the church, requires that his personal conduct clearly reflect the saving and sanctifying gospel of God's redemptive grace 
and the ongoing process of forming, being formed in the image of God. Notice here also that Paul tells Titus to pick a man based on these qualifications. In other words, it's noted that the elders, the church leaders, the pastors be selected as a result of his already exemplifying these qualifications. Here, In other words, his qualifications are to be met before he becomes, before he's appointed here. Simply put, there are qualifications here that a man must meet in order to be an elder. Not become an elder and then, okay, let's work on these things, although there's always growth in areas here. They're not characteristics that a man assumes after he becomes an elder, but they're things that are already a part of his life here, that God marks him out. In other words, good disciples of Jesus Christ will make good disciples of others. And so, these qualifications here in verses 6 through 9 can be broken down into three simple areas here. First of all, underneath the men, elders... Pastors, bishops, overseers, whatever word you want to use in the New Testament here, shepherds, must be blameless in their marriage and family life. Donald Guthrie says, as in 1 Timothy, the home is regarded as the training ground for Christian leaders. How is your home and your responsibility in it? Right away, mention is made both of the spouse and the children to kind of start the list. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, or one woman, man, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly here. There are five different possible interpretations of this word, a one woman, man. I'm just going to keep this very simple for you. At the very basics, it means a man who is uh, 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 pure in his marriage, who is devoted and faithful in his marriage. But notice it's not just his marriage, but secondly, his children, his children. If he has children, the word children here is a word that's used of young children who are still living under the roof here. Uh, young children, they must be children who, scholars debate this term here, are either believing children or children who are going to fall into certain behavior guidelines at home. They're not like the prodigal son. Um, <clears throat> There's, a, as I mentioned, there's a little debate whether the word should be translated believing children or faithful children, as it's rendered here. Um, uh, and there are good men uh, that have uh, landed on one side or the other on this. Um, the, the, the phrase there, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, is the idea of wild, being wild. Um, it is the picture of the prodigal son, according to the, uh, the, the, the Greek lexicon. And regardless of where you land on this, Paul is making it very clear that parents are held responsible for their influence on their children in the right orderings of their home. At the same time, children are independent individuals, aren't they? And we can't change hearts. If you look at the, the parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 of what an elder is to be, Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 3, 4. One that rules or manages, oversees, well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity or seriousness. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care 
of the church or family of God. If you can't rule your own family and have your family in order, then how can you be someone who um, uh, manages God's household? Now, as to uh, where I fall on this, whether this is whether it's a requirement to have believing children, or just means children who are are, are abiding under the guidelines in your roof, I would have to say this: you'd have to you'd have to fire me right now because not all my children know the Lord. If this means believing children, and is a requirement for an elder, um, <clears throat> that word faithful is also used in Second Timothy. 2.2, where Paul says, The things you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit you to faithful men. Faithful men. Obviously, they were believing men, if they're com- committed to faithful men, but they are men who have proven themselves. Uh, men who have shown a, a willingness to live on, in the line of the gospel. Now, the word there in Titus chapter 1 uh, in verse 6, children is a word used of younger children, young, younger children here. Used refers to youngsters still, uh, still in their uh, minority here and uh, under their parents' authority. But it means having children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. They're not rebellious in a constant sense here. It means that, uh, it does not mean that, the el- that a person must have children to be an elder, but if he has them, they are in subjection in his home here. They are children who are still rightfully under the father's authority in their home here. And I think when you put the parallel passages in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, and Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, you get the sense of what Paul is instructing Titus say to look for. Children who are not undisciplined, disobedient, or rebellious as marks of their lives. Fathers who are being fathers, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Husbands who are devoted to their wives. But he also says that elders are to be blameless in their character and conduct, verses 7 through 8. He just says that a, an elder or a bishop is one who is entrusted with God's work. He is God's steward. He is God's steward. And he lists five negative things first. Five areas of strong temptation. Namely pride, anger, drinking, power, and money they are to avoid. And he makes the point that exposure to these things, lusting after these things, is a hazard to their office and their qualifications. And they require self-mastery. They require self-control, one of the fruits of the Spirit. They require a surrender to God, surrendering our passions to God's passions. He says uh, here that they are not to be overbearing, not to be overbearing. Uh, 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 that's, the, that's the word self-willed, uh, the idea of not being soon angry, not, not stubborn, not arrogant here. Because a leadership role is going to bring certain um, uh, opportunities here for those things to, with, with, a, with, a, with a twisted and distorted character to be perverted. He says, not quick-tempered. The word there, quick-tempered, is orgolos, and it's from the Greek word angry, and it means peppery. Peppery. You know someone who quickly flies off the handle? Can't doesn't qualify for a pastor. 
Someone who always has to react here. Uh, uh, why? Because the ministry demands difficult people, doesn't it? You have to be in control. You can't give in to these temptations to be irritable and impatient. The third negative is not given to the drunkenness here. Uh, so a, a um, uh, not given to wine means a, a surrender to the influence of wine. The drunkenness. Not violent. Not violent. That means no surrender, no striker here. Somebody who, uh, you know, is related to the quick temper, someone who's ready to take off the gloves every time. It wasn't Jesus' style. And verse 7, the negative warning, not pursuing dishonest gain. It's not a dishonesty of practice as it is a greed of motives here. In other words, doing what they're doing for the motive of greed. And after these five things that he says not to do, there are, there are six positives which are pretty self-explanatory. He must be hospitable. Welcoming, entertaining, in a sense here, of, of strangers. One who loves what is good. Loves what is good. That's pretty broad, isn't it? But somebody who is serious about things that are good and recognizes them and pursues them. Someone who is self-controlled, has a sober, sensible judgment, a disciplined lifestyle. Someone who is upright in his dealings with people. Just is the translation here. And holy or devout in his attitude toward God. And then in verse 8, disciplined, self-controlled, self-controlled. That word there comes at the end of all these lists of virtues, doesn't it? Just like it does in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Self-mastery, that's the climax of all this, isn't it? It covers everything, pretty much. But not only in his character, pastors must be blameless in their doctrine. Chapter 1 and verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. By the way, as he has been taught, tells us that there needs to be a teaching and discipling relationship. A father-son relationship, just like Paul calls Titus, my true son in the faith here. He, he is to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it had been taught. The word there is logos, the word for God. And notice how he describes the message. It is, first of all, reliable. It is reliable, the faithful word, the trustworthy word. It is trustworthy. Why? Because it is true, and verse 2 tells us, that God never lies. But secondly, it is literally according to the teaching of the apostles. He's the whole fast to the apostolic faith. That's, that, that, that's a term that simply means a doctrine of the way of Christ and his apostles that has been passed down to us. Generation by generation. The things that never change. The things that in each century, in each culture, are always the same. He is to hold tightly to those, to cling to those things. The body of instruction, the, 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 the truth that um, Jude says in Jude chapter 1, he says, uh, the faith that was once delivered to us, the body of truth of the apostles, the teaching you have learned, the faith, the truth, the deposit in the New Testament here. Elders must be blameless in this, which means elders need to know the Word of God. Not go off on tangents. Not go off on things that uh, are, 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 are fringe-worthy, but to hold 
strongly to the faith that has been delivered through the generations. But I want you to see not only the, the mandate, the men, I want you to see here the mission. The mission. What are they to do this work? Just keep it to themselves. No. They are to use the word. It is their tool. It is their only tool. In Titus 1 and verse 9 he says, Holding fast the faithful word as he, as he has been taught. For what? For the purpose of. That you may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. The mission here is this. If they were to hold firmly and never let go. Never let go to what, by the way? Well, look in chapter 3 and verse 8. And 1.9 he says, holding fast the faithful word. And Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 he says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Your, your doctrine and your, and, your, and your life of practice. But that faithful word is what verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 are. The gospel. When you look at it, the gospel. Why will they need to hold firmly to this? Because they need it in their teaching ministry. They need to use it to encourage others. And they need to use it to show people that their lives are not in line with the gospel. Instructing and refuting. So it is clear from this passage that these pastors are called, their task is to be a teaching ministry. A teaching ministry. Which means, like First Timothy chapter 3, they need to be able to teach. They need to be loyal to the teaching here. In fact, um, in chapter 1 and verse 11, it says uh, they need to silence the false teachers. In chapter 1 and verse 13, they're to rebuke sharply. In chapter 2 and verse 1, 2, and 3, they're to teach these things. In chapter 2, in verse 9 and 15, they're, they're to encourage with the Word of God, uh, 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 to exhort. In verse 6 of chapter 1, they're to encourage and rebuke like we saw in verse 15 of chapter 1. Uh, they are to, they're to encourage and rebuke. They're to remind in chapter 3 and verse 1. They're to warn in chapter 3 and verse 10. Why? Because the goal of pastoral ministry is more and more worshipers conform to the image of Christ, so that Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, tells, Paul says, that he labors for this according to the faith of, God, uh, of God's elect in the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. So that godliness comes. Godliness for God's glory and other salvation. Discipleship. So there's a twofold nature of pastoral ministry, it is to exhort and to rebuke. One of the reformers 500 years ago said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both, and he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Paul notes this double use of the scripture when he says that she should be able both to exhort and to convict the gainsayers. What does this mean? How does this apply to you? You're saying, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder. Some of you may be. And I want that to sink in for some of you. 
God may be calling you to this. And if he's calling you to this, he's calling you to replicate this character by his grace in your life. But whether he calls you or not, this tells you the things that you are to pray for your leaders, spiritual leaders, doesn't it? That these things are evident in their lives, that they grow more and more into these things. These things also show us the things to look for in a leader. The things to aspire for. The things to pray for. It also tells us that if we're to hold firmly to the truth so that we can exhort and rebuke, that one of the temptations of our hearts is to change what you believe to suit how you want to behave. And many times that happens with pastors and people below, doesn't it? We change, we don't hold firmly to the truth, we change what we want to believe so that we can act how we want to act. And it's wrong. This also shows, perhaps, uh, men and women, the areas that you may need to, to, to have changed by God, to be shaped by the gospel. This is a life that is discipled, looks like Jesus' life. It also tells you that if the task of, of a pastor is to exhort through the word of God, and to rebuke for the word of God, that you need to be humble enough to receive it. Particularly when you need to be rebuked, right? When your life is not in line with the gospel. When your homes are not in line with, 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 with God's word. When your individual life is, is, is out of bounds. It is not in line with the gospel. How will you receive rebuke? And it also tells us that we need to be loving. That God expects us to be loving enough to give a private loving rebuke to others. Doesn't it? In a proper way. But I also want to add to us. And have you think about this here as I close. If the mandate here in Titus 1.5 for the good of the church was to ordain elders and Paul's pattern was to have teams of pastors here, then that means that this is something that our church needs to move towards. And I'm asking you as a congregation to pray that God will bring elders, that God will raise up elders and in specific, I'm asking you to pray that God will bring an elder on our, on our staff, I hate to use that word, uh, on a part-time basis here within the next year. And I want you to pray to that end that it will be the right person. And that we'll be, we'll be able to begin to develop together as a team a, an eldership where more men from our congregation can join us as overseers who meet these qualifications and God is calling to do this task. And pray that God arranges the circumstances and the logistics of this in order for this to happen. Because God never expected one man to do... God expected teams with diversity of gifts and different perspectives and a team model. He does this all the way back when he trains his disciples. He sends them out two by two, doesn't he? Does he send them out one by one? No. Two by two. So at the very least, two men, Right? And as God continues to help our church advance and grow, as we uh, come under his, his administration and his plan for the church, and as we pursue the areas of ministry outside of our four walls, as well as the discipling and growing ministry uh, within our congregation, we need more men to pick this up. And when we look at Titus 2, we need more women to pick this up as well. And so that's what I want you as a congregation of South Oak Community Church to pray for there have been, uh, uh, um, I feel that we're on this, this, this third stage, so to speak, here. And if we're going to have a local impact as well as a global impact, 
then Titus 1 verse 5 says, this is the thing that, need, that is missing that needs to be put in place. And I believe, I believe as we take that step of faith, and we follow God in obedience to His Word, and we choose the right person, not as someone who works for Jamie, not as somebody who's an assistant pastor, but somebody who works together as a team, and I understand you know, uh, some of the dynamics of how that might work, here and, and, and I do think there's a principle here that the Bible uh, speaks of a first among equals. It wasn't even 15 years after Jesus resurrected that we have a clear indication in Acts chapter uh, in, the, in the book of Acts of the Jerusalem church having a team of elders. James being the foremost um, uh, speaker, uh, mouthpiece of that. But I believe if we're going to move ahead, this is something that needs to be in place here. And I'm praying to God. I preached on this in 2014, and, and, uh, and, and folks uh, seem to really uh, uh, grasp that. Uh, I'm praying to the Lord that He brings the, the right person along. I want you to pray that with me as well.